And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, June 9th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the SEC is cooking up a new role for financial services cybersecurity. Plus, she helps ensure veterans receive equal care no matter who they are or where they live. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, not enough new entrants, a lack of accountability, too many modifications to existing contracts, and not enough new awards. The Veterans Affairs Department got an earful from House lawmakers last month over its IT contracting habits. The trends highlighted by the Government Accountability Office and House Veterans Affairs Committee members were not necessarily surprising to VA officials, but still worrisome. Federal News Network's Executive Editor Jason Miller joins me to tell us what VA is doing to change the way it manages and works with contractors. And Jason, give us the top line on what the GAO and the Congress members found about VA contracting. What they found was that annual IT obligations increased to about $4.2 billion from 2017 to about $6.5 billion in 2021. But the number of companies receiving those awards actually fell by more than 50%. So dollars are up by $2 billion, companies down by 50%. Now, GAO also found about half of all of VA's IT obligations in 2021 only went to 10 contractors. That's up from 45% in 2017. And more broadly, about 75% of all VA IT obligations went to about 30 contractors. Tom, we're talking about 2021 data because 2022 data is not quite available yet, but GAO does expect similar results. Now, on top of this limited use of contractors, GAO says VA is also awarding fewer new contracts, but issuing more modifications to, or task orders on existing contracts more frequently. And this is part of their concern from House lawmakers about the lack of accountability around contractor performance. And I think that's part of the reason why VA's CIO isn't approving every IT contract as required by law. And I think that's also of concern. So a lot of things that are happening around the way the VA is spending their money for IT. And I think that's playing into what we're about to talk about. All right. And you found that they are actually changing their approach in how they work with contractors? Let's be clear, Tom. This change has probably been in the works for some time. A hearing that happened a week or a week and a half ago doesn't all of a sudden force an agency to change their entire approach to contractors. So I don't think it's a one-to-one, but I think they probably maybe pushed VA to move a little quicker. And VA CIO Kurt Delbeni says the goal of this new approach is to create more of an integrated team where contractors and VA employees, as he says it, live in sync and operate in a shared team. We are moving into a world where if we do an RFP, for instance, we won't define that first nugget, that MVP, and say the first milestone, that first thing you'll deliver to us is that MVP. And then we'll see that it meets the actual need. We'll then iterate and make sure we get it to that place where it is set, and then we'll scale it out from there. And then all those optional tasks past that, we're not actually committing those dollars until we actually see that the system is the system that we, we think is right. Delbeni says that this is the VA is the second now big agency to really say in the last few weeks publicly, we're going to step away from this quote unquote big bang approach when it comes to federal technology projects. Now, Tom, again, this is not uh, surprising, but I think the fact he is coming out and saying this is really what's significant here. A second change is focused on small businesses and new entrants. Now, Debeni says this iterative or agile approach will actually help these firms show what they can do for VA. We'll get in, into situations where we'll give them a small piece of work and say, show us what you can deliver here, because there's a lot of innovation that goes on with smaller contractors, but they, if they can prove themselves and then scale up and do more and more with us over time. The gist is thinking very differently about contractors thinking of them as integral parts of our team that are peers of ours, but then keeping that that evaluation going and having those engagements, particularly with their leadership, to make sure that they're doing the right thing for us, and then changing the kind of projects we drive so that there's less of this big bang, more of that build success upon success. And we think if you take those things collectively, it'll increase our success with projects in the VA. This change isn't actually 100% new. Delbeni says VA has already begun some of this in a contract vehicle, specifically out of the chief technology officer's office, where small businesses can prove out against these small task orders. This is actually happening today. So I think they may have used this as, I'll call it a pilot for lack of a better word, but to show, hey, we can do this. All right. And then the other question that GAO and the Congress people brought up was the idea of accountability. And is this change going to just lead to more oversight of contractor performance so that so that VA has accountability to its overseers and the contractors due to VA. 
Yes, it's amazing how that goes up the line and back down the line. Yes, you know, indeed. As, as, as they say, certain things flow downhill. And I think Del Benny has the accountability built into this small task order approach within his office and within each project team. One of the things we've done is we have a clear set of OKRs or objectives and key results, both at the OIT overall level and within each of the individual teams. The idea is every team knows what are their key objectives and it's it's done by semester for us. And so we'll have a spring semester and we'll, that something will end about June and then another one that ends in the fall and we'll define a set of OKRs, things we wanna make progress on over that six months. And that can tell us, like if, the, if there's a particular OKR within a team, we're not making progress, we need to work harder on that particular team. Now as Del Benny and VA goes through these small task orders, these MVPs, if, the, if his office finds that there are problems, if they're not meeting their goals, these, the vendors, he actually has asked vendors to, hey, swap out those three or four or five people and bring in a different three, four or five people working on a specific project because this is not working for us. Now, there's also several other tools VA has to ensure contractors are meeting their requirements. We use FATAR as one way to do that, um, by whether we approve a contractor being used for a particular project. But we also do root cause analysis on every issue. We identify places where contractors are not actually performing well, and we make sure that we document that for future use and remediate against it. And I think that's really key to kind of upping the game for contractors, generally speaking. We also do this on a, on a regular basis and have meetings with contractors, et cetera, but nothing can beat that, hey, get them in the room, get them on the call, let's, let's problem solve together and, and resolve that. Again, Kurt Delbeni talking about increasing accountability, but also increased partnership with contractors. And despite the myth busters and everything else going on in the FAR, Delbeni has come under some criticism about his willingness to meet with vendors and how they're handling ethics waivers for Delbeni and other executives. Tell us more about that one, Jason. This began with questions and a briefing in April by Delbeni and VA Special Counsel Michael Waldman. House VA committee lawmakers, both majority and minority, wanted more information about those ethics waivers that VA has issued for Delbeni and how he has recused himself from specific interactions with his former company, Microsoft. Now, Delbeni was an executive vice president at Microsoft for about eight years before coming to VA, and there's some concern about does he lean too heavily on Microsoft products or not. Tom, that, it's, it's hard to say whether that's true or not, but I think there is some concern about what, what VA's process is. And at the time, VA actually told the committee they don't have a good process to, to manage and oversee these waivers, and they need to put a system in place. VA Chairman Mike Bost actually wrote to VA Secretary Dennis McDonough just la earlier this week asking for an update about this new ethics and recusal system when it will be ready. Now, at the same time, we have to be clear that there's some in the federal community, I've heard this uh, over and again, that Del Benny is maybe too selective of who he or his team meets with. And given the goal to change the nature of contracting, I actually asked him how he plans to change that perspective. The scale of the organization means I get a lot of emails and a lot of inquiries about wanting to sell services or sell products to the VA. It's impossible for me to meet with everybody. Every single mail that I get, it goes to our strategic sourcing group that then looks to see who's the right person within the VA to triage this and figure out if there's a need. And so we've really kind of made sure it's a fair, a fair playground in that in, or playing field in that regard. There are some places where a particular contractor, we've got, we have a book of business with them and there's some issues and I want to, and so when they reach out, I say, yeah, I actually would like to meet with you because I have some, I have some issues I want to work out with you. Or by the way, I'd like to understand where you're going. And I do a lot of those meetings, but I also meet with a lot of smaller contractors along the way as well, but I can't meet with everybody, but I want to make sure we get everything triaged to make sure that that goes to the right place. One other note that I think we should make sure we highlight is Delbeni did encourage vendors to use something called the Pathfinder program. This lets contractors submit either unsolicited ideas or come in and show VA how to use certain technology in a safe space, a sandbox, if you will. And sometimes there's a contract that comes from it, sometimes it doesn't, but I think it gives those vendors that opportunity to show VA what they can do. And I think that's really what Delbeni and his team is trying to get to. We want to know more, we want to understand more, and we want to create this team environment. Tom, it's a big sure. change for VA in many ways. We'll have to see how it goes. Big change, big agency, big dollars. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And be sure to check out his reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, she helps ensure veterans receive equal care no matter who they are or where they live. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The population of the nation's veterans has steadily grown more diverse with respect to race and ethnic background over the decades, and there are more women than ever. Our next guest has done much to help the Veterans Health Administration ensure underserved and vulnerable veteran populations. She's the recipient of a recent VA Secretary's Research Award, and not the first time. And she's also a staff physician at the Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System, Dr. Donna Washington. Dr. Washington, good to have you with us. Thanks. Great to be here. And I want to get a definition of terms, underserved, because the VA is everywhere and does all this extensive reach out to veterans wherever they might be. So how does underserved come to this particular group of, of health care seekers? So I'm glad you asked that question. When you think about the term underserved in other contexts, meaning sort of the broader community outside of the VA, it often relates to lack of access to services. But within VA, financial barriers to healthcare access are minimized. Eligible veterans can use the VA without paying an insurance premium, for example. But despite that, there are groups both within as well as outside the VA that have historically experienced greater barriers to achieving the highest level of patient experiences, healthcare quality, and health outcomes. These are the groups that are underserved, in a sense, outside the VA. Within the VA, it's probably more accurate to think of them, of, of these groups that are defined by race and ethnicity, by sex, by socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, mental health disability, to name a few of the veteran population characteristics we've examined, it's probably more correct to think of these groups as those that have been historically at risk. Sure. You have done a lot of research in this area. And what are some of the conclusions you found as to why this condition exists? That answer requires an understanding of social determinants of health. When we look at the influences on health, health uh, for groups served by the VA, health for groups in the community, then we find that medical care, though important, really just addresses a fraction of the health outcomes. Social determinants of health, meaning the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems shaping the conditions of daily life have a much, much greater impact on health outcomes. And so uh, despite having limited financial barriers to care, these social conditions are pervasive, and so they influence health outcomes of veterans served by VA. And does this usually occur on racial lines, or is it more a matter of poverty? For example, a high percentage of the veteran suicides are white males, but they're in rural areas where there's not a lot of support. Maybe in urban areas, would black veterans maybe have I don't know. There are certain public health conditions that affect black populations more than others, and they would be part of that milieu. Is that kind of what you're saying? So I'm saying it's not an either or situation that when we look across different veteran characteristics, we see that it's affected by some groups based on socioeconomic status, as you mentioned. So you mentioned, for example, uh, white males in rural areas. Rurality or geography is important. And um, when you think about uh, access to healthcare services, for example, then the existing community infrastructure may be less in rural areas. And so that's a factor. Absolutely, race and ethnicity, as well as sex within VA, are important characteristics. And so these are all important characteristics. One of the major ways to evaluate and monitor health inequities or variations in health and healthcare within the VA that the Office of Health Equity has championed is periodically publishing a National Veteran Health Equity Report. This provides the VA with information similar to the that of the larger U.S., the U.S. as a whole sure. has a national quality and health disparities report that's put out each year. When you look at the National Veteran Health Equity Report, you see that there are sections not only addressing socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity, but also rurality, age, and other factors, sex and other factors. 
that define the different groups that are potentially at risk. We're speaking with Dr. Donna Washington. She's a staff physician at VA's Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System and a recipient of a recent Secretary's Award for Research. And so, therefore, the implication, and you tell me, is that VA's traditional one-size-fits-all approach to delivering health care maybe needs to be tailored to different populations, a population health approach. The VA has tailored it. I've seen in my research some good results because of that. So back when I started looking at differences in quality of care and outcomes within VA by race and ethnicity, what I identified early on is that there were differences disparities, meaning meaningful decrements by race and ethnicity for both processes of care, meaning what's done. So for example, does someone with diabetes have an eye exam or have a foot exam when it's due? We found early on differences in both processes of care as well as outcomes, meaning is there blood pressure controlled? Is there diabetes controlled? And so forth. And with the first quality transformation, the VA was able to systematically really sort of right-size care so that there were systematic processes in care to assure that all veterans got the same recommended care. And what we found is that the disparities in processes of care closed. They narrowed or they closed. However, the disparities in some of these clinical outcomes that really are influenced both by healthcare as well as by social determinants of health persisted over time. More recently, some of the different interventions and uh, clinical innovations that have been put into place address tailoring some of those social determinants of health. Let me give you an example. Yeah, I was going to say, let's give us an example here. Sure. The COVID-19 pandemic is probably fresh in all of our minds. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, then VA, as well as other health systems, was able to pivot to delivering telehealth services, meaning video, as well as other ways of, of delivering care. But there's something called a digital divide. Not everyone lives in a community with good broadband access. Not everyone could afford a laptop, a smartphone, or other ways of connecting. And so the VA implemented a digital divide program in which they distributed broadband-enabled tablets or phones to, to veterans at risk. So this is an example of tailoring care to address some of the social determinants of health so that all groups have the best possible chance of achieving optimal health outcomes. Right. And I know VA went through a lot of uh, effort to make sure that women veterans were treated in a way that could affect outcomes. I recall one story not too long ago, actually, within the last 10 years or so, where simply turning examination chairs around so that they didn't face the doorway to the hall was a way in which more women felt comfortable coming into VA for an examination. Absolutely. The example that you just cited is part of looking at the physical plant. So when you think about the environment of care, there are um, physical aspects of it, there are cultural aspects of it, there's staff sensitivity. And the VA, based on data, based on studies that I've led as well as others, identified where the areas were that needed improving and then systematically set out to create an environment of care and a culture of care that was welcoming and appropriate for women. And what about the use of peer groups to encourage people to seek the care that they can get? Because different groups, different populations have different places they tend to hang around. I know the Census Bureau, for example, uses very highly individualized channels of communication among different ethnic groups in a way to encourage people to respond to the census poll every 10 years, that kind of thing. Does does VA do that at all? Or have you found that to be something effective? Two questions embedded in there. First of all, peer groups are really crucially important. One example of the way that that's used in VA are the peer support counselors. So peer groups have been studied, peer counselors. It's really the health system equivalent to community health workers as a way to help veterans navigate the system, help veterans 
talk to someone who could relate to their experiences because they've been through it, but also successfully identified ways to address some of the barriers faced. And so peer groups have been used. They have been studied. There are studies that have demonstrated their effectiveness. And I mentioned earlier social determinants of health. One of the important social determinants is social support. And that's really where peer groups can come in as a uh, way to address that isolation and and that need to have greater social support. And what's next on your research agenda, you personally? I Probably started with the easy hanging fruit. When you look at health equity research and health disparities, it goes in generations. And much of my research sort of followed that path, initially identifying where disparities were so that we would know what areas to look at to intervene. Next, doing careful work to understand what some of those underlying mechanisms are, and then addressing the easier things, such as processes of care, looking further at social determinants of health, doing work to tailor care or to identify what forms of tailor care would help to address some of the social determinants of health. But now we're left with sort of the thornier, more difficult to address issues. And that's the underlying causes that we can't see. So some of these so-called invisible contributors to disparities in health and health care by race, ethnicity, by sex, and by other population characteristics include some of the biases that are built into institutions, structural barriers to care. It's been termed different things, structural racism even. And let me just give you a couple of examples sure. that has come to the attention of health systems over the last couple of years. With COVID-19, then it's very, it was very important, for example, to monitor oxygen levels. The healthcare systems use something called pulse oximeters, which measures the oxygen saturation in someone's mm-hmm. blood. It's, it's really a marker, for example, among those who are infected with COVID-19, right. how they might be impacted. And unbeknownst to many people, when pulse oximeter machines were developed, they were standardized on people who did not have dark skin. And so you could imagine that this is something that's invisible to those of us who use these machines, the fact that they actually had different and potentially erroneous results in, let's say, people with dark skin. I didn't realize skin color could affect oxygen levels in the blood. Well, it doesn't affect oxygen levels. What it affects is the um, ability of the machines to detect low levels. And so I see, because it's um, a non-invasive type of thing. So it's it's, looking at you from the surface, in other words, the machine. Got it's it. a non-invasive thing. Or, I mean, there are other things, there are algorithms, for example, how we measure kidney function. And so these are things that the best intentioned people don't know that the machines may not be functioning the same way in different groups of people based on different characteristics. And so those are sort of the invisible contributors to differences in the ability to detect health issues and and health outcomes. So addressing these structural barriers to care is really one of the next frontiers to sort of unraveling what some of the causes of these persistent disparities are. And amidst all this research, you are a staff physician in a VA center. Do you ever get the time to lay a stethoscope on a chest once in a while too? Absolutely. It's really important to me as a primary care provider that I maintain a continuity annuity practice. So I continue to deliver care as a designated women's health provider in the women's clinic, as well as in the general primary care clinic. This is so important to me for so many reasons. One, it's just so rewarding to be able to impact the health and help individual veterans achieve their health goals. Research takes a long time, whereas the feedback I get from patients each and every week is immediate. So that's number one, but also the patient's that I've had the privilege of caring for have inspired me and inspired some of the questions that I've asked. When when I arrived at the VA, I actually was not a women's health researcher, but delivering care in the women's health clinic really helped me to understand what some of the issues were that my patients were struggling with. And that led me to design some of the research studies that then led to changes in 
healthcare and improvement in healthcare. Great story. Dr. Donna Washington is a staff physician at VA's Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System and recipient of a recent Secretary's Award for research. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Farmers.gov really launched USDA's next generation of cloud services. But first, the SEC is cooking up a new rule for financial services cybersecurity. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Securities and Exchange Commission is contemplating comments to a proposed rule on cybersecurity of financial services companies. Our next guest specializes in quantifying risks and wonders whether the proposed rules will actually help. Socket Modi is co-founder and CEO of Safe Security, and he joins me now. Mr. Modi, good to have you on. Tom, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And what would the SEC have its financial services companies do? Because we see this all over government, specialized sets of rules and requirements by various agencies for their particular constituencies. The SEC is basically trying to make sure that everything related to cybersecurity and privacy is being streamlined. And during a time where businesses are going technology-driven, technology is becoming the business, securing technology becomes securing their business. And unfortunately, the regulations and the uh, and, and almost the way you look at running your businesses for the last 100 years are not the same that would be for the next 10 years. And that's the reason why very clearly a ton of companies have screwed up when it comes to their disclosures, when it comes to a hack, when it comes to them maintaining their cybersecurity records of how they've been maintaining their cybersecurity resilience both historically and during an incident, and also being able to future predict whether they will continue to protect the data of their customers in the rightful way, in the most responsible way or not. And that's really where the SEC is stepping in to say that now that businesses are becoming digital, securing that digital means securing the business. And in order to streamline the expectations uh, from companies uh, is where the SEC is coming in. And uh, we actually think it's an extremely positive thing in the right direction. What do they specifically ask for? That is, do they want faster reporting of incidents? That's, for example, what Veterans Affairs is asking of its contractors. Or are they also prescribing specific cyber measures? Firstly, the SEC is not prescribing any cyber measures because the SEC's take is that it's your business and you understand how to protect your data in the best possible way. However, I would say the two big themes which which actually come out, which is post-incident, one is the reporting and reporting about the incident. And the second is what have you historically done in order to protect your organization? And let me double click on that for a minute. The SEC is proposing that within a given time span, and you know, there's still the debate which is going on, whether it should be 48 hours, whether it should be 72 hours, whether it should be a week, what should be the right amount of time frame within which a company needs to notify the SEC in case of any material incident that it gets to know about. And you want to keep this in mind, a lot of cyber hacks are not detected in real time. What that means in a very simple way is a lot of times you get to know about a hack which has been happening within your environment from one year back, from two years back, from five years back. That's what they call the dwell time. Totally. A hundred percent. So that's the amount of time that you need to go in and report as soon as possible for anything which had happened historically or is happening right now, as soon as you find out. And that's exactly what the SEC is proposing right now, which is a giant uh, leapfrog when it comes to today's uh, regulations, which don't require you to do that within any defined time frame, especially for all publicly traded companies. And the second piece that the SEC is asking is that if you do get hacked, you need to prove to the SEC that you were doing enough when it comes to protecting the data of your customers historically. And that's really where, you know, you obviously need to go in and say that quantitatively and not qualitatively of how secured your organization's been. And what have you been doing to invest your resources to not only measure, but also manage your cyber risk in the most efficient way possible. We're speaking with Socket Modi. He is co-founder and CEO of Safe Security. And you 
you hit upon a key phrase there, not just qualitatively, but quantitatively. How is it possible to, or how does one quantify their degree of protection, their degree of cybersecurity? So, Tom, as Peter Drucker very famously said that you cannot manage what you cannot measure. Everything when it comes to better management needs to start from measurement. How do you quantify cyber risk? The simple answer to that is take a credit risk in the financial world. Today, when you have a credit score, depending on how many times you've paid your credit card bills, uh, how many times you've not missed your mortgage payments, uh, everything to do with your finances being all collected together to quantify into an experience score or, or a FICO score saying this is how risky you are as an individual if somebody wants to give you mortgage, give you credit card. That's exactly how cybersecurity can also be quantified. Depending on how you are doing right now, starting from deploying the right antiviruses, deploying from the right firewalls, what kind of policies do you have? Do you have a disaster recovery incident response plan or not, et cetera, et cetera. Depending on various parameters, it is possible to quantify and say, here is the likelihood of a cyber incident to occur in your environment, probabilistically. And based on that, you can also say if it does occur, this is where you are, this is where the industry is, and this is what it'll cost you, say X million dollars, if there is an incident that occurs in your environment. So enough data science methodologies that can be stolen or inspired from, from the world of insurance or credit risk that you can apply to cyber risk, which is not done in the past. And that really makes the lives of the regulators, the feds, at the same time, companies which are trying to make sure they're compliant sure. uh, much more easier. Of course, then everything depends on what weight you give to the different factors so that what the algorithm turns out actually makes sense in reality. A hundred percent, Tom. And not only the factors, I think the bigger issue there is transparency of those factors because people don't mind because there's always subjectivity, whether it should be 500, 5 or 5,000 factors. And, and that'll always remain, right? You cannot come to one list which everybody agrees on. But I think the more important thing that we've seen is the transparency of those 30, 40, 50 factors. So when you click on your experience score, it actually tells you here are the 10 factors that affect your score. And now that you know that, you can work on that and you can prioritize what matters more than the other. Exactly in the same way, the transparency of the methodology is, is what we've seen is more important than getting to everybody agree to go ahead and say, what is, the, what is the list of the key factors? And getting back to the cybersecurity operational questions, we talked about dwell time. And again, VA is asking and a lot of other agencies are asking for this early disclosure. But as you pointed yeah. out, sometimes the intrusion can happen and sit there for a year, you know, watching your computer, your microprocessor clock and deciding when it's going to deploy. Is there a way to move? So it's one thing, oh, we found this and you pick up the phone and call the SEC or call the CIA or whatever it might be, NSA, whatever it might be. But what about finding out at the point of intrusion so that it's not a year and then 24 hours? Yeah, Tom, the problem of finding it at the intrusion is that you would probably have to pick up the phone at least 2,500 times if you're a Fortune 500 company every day. Uh, and call the SEC for anything that's happening. Because as you know, there are these security operations centers whose job is to notify P1, P2, P3 incidents that happen all the time. It's almost like a very large real estate company, uh, which has a lot of you know properties. It'll always keep having incidents all the time. What matters are the material incidents that do occur, and that is what the SEC wants to know about. And to know that, and this is where the back and forth is happening, that is 72 hours, are, is, is a week enough time frame to know that whether something is material or not. And even if I do know what's material, as you know, it's not so easy to just pick up the phone and talk to SEC. They would expect you to report in a particular format with all the evidences that you know about. So the question is that in the first four days, first three days, is it more important to build that report in that particular format or invest all your energy, all your resources in making sure that you're responding to that incident first and then making sure uh, I, nobody's running away from disclosures but the real the real question is the time for disclosure which is out there and that's really what the debate has been all about right so if you find something that was an intrusion but you're able to kill it before it executes then no harm done you don't need to report that because there was no material totally. effect 
correct? Absolutely. All right. So then the question becomes finding when something did happen, responding one to the incident and fixing it, and or at least getting the outlines of it, because if the data is gone, maybe you can't fix it anymore. And then that disclosure, the closer those two can come together, the better off you'll be in a regulatory sense and in a cybersecurity sense. A hundred percent, Tom. And remember, there are two types of disclosures that they talk. One is about the incident. And the second is the historical trend line of saying, how well have you been doing in order to historically protect the data of your customers? So that's really the two dimensions, which is more tactical and then historically more strategic of saying how secure you are. And that's where obviously going in and bringing in a quantified solution helps, not just saying, hey, I've been doing everything in my capacity to protect the data. The better thing to say is a year back, I was at 14% likelihood of a ransomware. And the while the industry average was 13%, and I bought it down from 14% to 11% based on the $30 million of investments I made on cybersecurity. And that is the reason why that becomes like the, 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 the common language which today is missing in the world of cybersecurity, because you can go to a large company and get their S&P score, Moody score, or a FICO score. But on the other side, you cannot do that for your cyber risk. If you're putting your money in Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase, you don't know which bank is more secured. And hacks happen all the time. We've seen banks collapse over, over 24 hours. So that's, that's, that's really what, what the world is going towards. You need a standardized, consistent way of looking at the cyber risk, the way you look at credit risk. Got it. So you can protect yourself against everything but the lawsuits. <laughs> that actually becomes a CYA also for companies, 100% right. Socket Modi is co-founder and CEO of Safe Security. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on your show, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Farmers.gov really launched USDA's next generation of cloud services. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Agriculture Department found a way to step off the commercial cloud computing treadmill. Starting with the revamping of the Farmers.gov platform, USDA's tech staff figured out how to create a repeatable process using application programming interfaces, APIs, to modernize. Casey Cook is the USDA's cloud architecture branch chief. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how this approach is also helping USDA reduce its technical debt. Now we support seven mission areas out of the de- eight in the department of a few hundred production APIs deployed. Uh, I don't know the exact count today, but it's probably in the 300 plus range. I want to make sure folks know we hear the term API, application programming interface, thrown around a lot. For a lot of us, when you say, what is an API? Oh, it's that piece of software that runs in between maybe two databases. From your perspective, how do you all define API? And just level set that for us. So if folks are listening and they're going, I've heard that term, but maybe I'm not 100% sure what it means. From my perspective, it's not even software per se. It's more of the plumbing on how you move data between systems. And then you start getting into patterns that go into like your data model and these other pieces of one system calls it X, the other calls it Y. You need to map those together. And that's where you start getting into like integration patterns. But those APIs are really that plumbing to help connect the systems because data is the real valuable asset there. And APIs are how you move them in a programmatic or non-human interfaced manner. And that can greatly increase the effectiveness of solutions and minimize the amount of human interaction needed for for these repeatable, often fast work that is executed through like an API-driven concept. And that's for one reason why you all probably got this idea or started with Farmers.gov. I know this was a big push from USDA to to modernize that that website, that portal, because it was pulling in that same information time and again. Who are you? Where do you live? What what benefits are you maybe already receiving? That that was what drove this this need because a lot of the data that these sites need, whether again Farmers.gov or any other, it's the same over and over again. Is that is that what's driving the API need? Oh, absolutely. With with FPAC offhand, I believe they had somewhere around a hundred source systems. 
and when FPAC was formed, it was the National Resource Conservation Center, Farm Service Agency, and the Risk Management Agency all had independent programs and systems that they were then moved to a single mission area. And when they did that, they had some systems that were duplicative and some systems that were authoritative sources for different pieces. And that's really, they were looking for some way to get those all plumbed back without having to tear down all the systems in the back end to enable this modernization. And they could adopt a pattern that allowed them to pick and choose and modernize without having to really re-engineer every system they had. They used this API-driven program to, to really drive that effectiveness so they could move the front end piece of the farmers.gov into a more modern and, and still interact with legacy systems and modernize as they move forward and use those repeatable API patterns that really created the uh, technical capability to allow them the flexibility to manage those couple hundred systems on the back end independently still and not have such a tight coupling because uh, I believe that there's similar to project management and many other kind of discussions. They have those lines of communication. It's like three lines of communication for every two people or something. And it, and it exponentially grows with point to point system integration. That's exactly the same problem. And so you could have five interconnections. I think it's somewhere around 25 independent connections to get all five of those fully integrated. I could have had my math wrong. That's not my specialty, but the, 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 the concept still lays proof, and that's where FPAC and, and uh, the USDA has adopted this API integration pattern to create that framework so they're not tightly coupled systems and they have the flexibility to manage them independently because they're very distinct mission delivery programs, but we need to have a way to integrate them into a more data-driven, modernized solutions that we have at the department today. And the, and the mission area delivery that really demands that modernization capability. And I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You keep saying FPAC, that's, that is the farmers.gov site. That, that's the part of USDA that runs farmers.gov. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. That FPAC's the farmers, producers and conservation. I might have that acronym a little wrong, but well, that's we'll look the that up, but missionary name. What's one of the mission areas for, for USDA? I want to make sure of that. So if folks keep hearing this. They're not thinking it's the name of the system, but it's actually the name of the organization within uh, USDA that's, that's running farmers.gov. So I appreciate that. The key here, I think, as well, is when you talk about the integration is, and you mentioned the, the numbers of integration, seven of eight mission support areas, roughly 300 plus APIs in production. The, the key piece here is to take legacy technology and make it accessible to the front end. So how is this kind of driven the modernization effort by USDA, the reuse of it, this idea of integration? Well, that's where it gets to be very interesting because you have these like three layers of integration patterns that there is. There's a system API that we use, and that's how you connect a source system to the, to the EAI solution. And then you have a, Next layer is a, a business and process layer. That's where you're connecting multiple system APIs to execute data enhancement or data revision to get you another business outcome that's that's really the experience API, that that's the piece where it goes to the farmers.gov in, in FPAC's scenario, where they took these multiple systems, integrated, and then modified it to give it the payload to the API on what farmers.gov was expecting. So they were able to have that pattern that the systems weren't so tightly coupled, they couldn't make revisions in one system. And that allows them to actually, we can deprecate a system API without impacting the other business flows. We could potentially bring in a modernized solution because that other system, the, the experience API still needs that same outcome. And we only have to modify the bare minimum and increase that reuse. And that really increases our ability to modernize because we can do a system by system modernization without impacting our whole API economy or API network. Casey Cook, Cloud Architecture Branch Chief for the Agriculture Department. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
it's been 30 years since Congress last authorized the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA. Lawmakers are only now considering legislation to reauthorize this small commerce agency. And some see NTIA having a critical job overseeing issues ranging from federal spectrum management to cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so what are they trying to do here with this authorization and what took them so long to get around to it, Justin? Yeah, this has actually been a couple years in the making where Congress has not been able to uh, get the reauthorization across the finish line. But they're trying again this year. House Energy and Commerce Communications and Technology Subcommittee Chairman Bob Lada, a Republican from Ohio, introduced a discussion draft of his NTIA Reauthorization Act late last month. And that is just one bill among a raft of legislation, really, that the committee is looking at affecting NTIA's programs and authorities. The reauthorization bill, uh, the draft, would elevate the administrator of NTIA from an assistant secretary position to an undersecretary of commerce. That's one of the big changes that would make that person on par with the director of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, for instance, well, just one of those larger undersecretariats at the Department of Commerce. Here's Bob Lada talking a little bit more about that. NTIA's mission has evolved significantly since it was last reauthorized in 1993. Managing spectrum has become more important and more complex. The Internet has become a component of our everyday lives, and as a result, the demand for broadband access has skyrocketed. And that's Congressman Lata. What are in NTIA's immediate plans, Justin? So the fiscal 2024 budget request from NTIA includes $117 million and 235 positions, nearly double its 2023 budget authority of $62 million and, and well up from 170 positions. So they're looking to make a pretty big increase to do things like implement the broadband program that Congressman Lotta mentioned. One of the things specific for federal spectrum management that affects federal agencies, NCIA is seeking $14 million and an additional six positions to fund a new dynamic sharing spectrum program that would be under a spectrum management portfolio. It would help manage interference between federal users of spectrum, so federal agencies and new entrants. So that's one of the priorities in NTIA's budget request this year. And this idea of spectrum management, I mean, they've been doing this for a long time and being involved in the auctions and so forth. How is that all changing and evolving? Well, lawmakers seem keen to strengthen NTIA's role in managing federal spectrum, especially in the wake of this big legato decision that the Federal Communications Commission handed down a few years ago that would have that did approve Uh, the telecommunication firm Legato's application to use spectrum near portions of the L-band used by GPS signals. That led to a whole uproar from places like the Defense Department and the Transportation Department from satellite companies and uh, farming agriculture companies who use GPS. NTIA led an unsuccessful petition by agencies to reverse that Legato order. And it kind of broke down or broke open this whole disconnect between NTIA and FCC. So now NTIA and FCC have a new memorandum of of agreement that just went in place last year. NTIA Administrator Alan Davidson talked a little bit about that at a hearing late last month. We put that in place last summer and it's already bearing fruit. Our staffs are working together very closely. I'm in really constant communication with the chairwoman on a range of issues, but especially on spectrum issues. And that's just the start. The other piece of this is working with the other federal agencies. And we're doing a lot of almost what I'd call shuttle diplomacy, a lot of time sitting with the agencies, understanding their needs, making sure we're coordinated and meeting them. Interesting, because it's the FCC that, of course, does conduct the auctions, but NTIA has to kind of live with the results in some sense. Any efforts to incentivize agencies to open what spectrum they still have for further commercial use, the next legato? Yeah, so uh, NTA is actually in the midst of developing a national spectrum strategy as it pushes to kind of better use limited spectrum resources for fifth generation wireless technologies and things like that. And the agency says it plans to work with the FCC and its federal partners to study whether an additional 1,500 megahertz of spectrum could be repurposed for more intensive use. And then in Congress, there's some legislation out there to incentivize agencies to essentially allow them to use funds 
more flexibly that come out of these spectrum auctions so that they can reallocate uh, systems and actually modernize systems using that funding. And this idea of NTIA having a role in the artificial intelligence, which is, I mean, the president was talking about that yesterday at a press conference with the prime minister of Great Britain. I mean, this is on everybody's lips now. What could NTI bring, NTIA bring to the whole AI question? Yeah, NCIA is among the commerce agencies that are really contributing to uh, the administration's approach to AI. Uh, the agency uh, in April actually put out a request for comment on AI accountability, and it's going to draft a report on AI accountability policy development. Uh, Davidson says the agency has a very specific role when it comes to driving AI accountability, but it could be an important one. Our part in particular is really focused on the policy side to help make sure that AI systems are trustworthy, right? That they actually do what they say they're going to do. And it's a hard problem. And you think of it as almost like financial audits, right? If you think about auditing a company's books, you do it after the fact to make sure that they actually made the money they said they made, paid the taxes they said they were going to pay. We want to make sure we can support the same kinds of systems for AI systems. And that's the idea behind our work. Yeah, transparent AI. That would be a great thing. And cybersecurity, that's kind of a country cousin here now. And NTIA would have something to do there too. Yeah, actually, there's a, another piece of draft legislation in Congress that would establish a Digital Economy and Cybersecurity Board of Advisors at NTIA. It would advise the agency on technical cybersecurity best practices, on how to drive economic growth while securing information communications networks. And, you know, Davidson, during that hearing, he said NTIA has a big role to play in making sure broadband networks are secure, making sure supply chain is secure, and the whole internet routing system is secure as well. So there's a role for NTIA there. Yeah, the little agency that could. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you're welcome. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.